The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Let's continue our worship of the Almighty God, Creator of heaven and earth, by hearing from His Word. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn in them with me to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4. Continuing to make our way through Hebrews, and we're looking at verses 11 through 16 this morning. Hebrews 4, verses 11 through 16. Let's give our full attention now as God Himself addresses us in His Word. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to, to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. Time of need. This concludes the reading of God's word. May He now be pleased to add His blessing to it. Well, when you hear that someone is traveling, we usually wish them safe travels or we pray for their safe travels. But have you ever wondered why we don't do this on a regular basis? For example, how many of you prayed for safe travel to church this morning? Or if your spouse was going out the door and say, said, hey, I'm running to Blair's, how many of you would respond with, okay, I'll pray for your safe travels? Well, that seems silly to do because that's just down the street, right? I know some of you are saying, oh, now I know what I'm going to say next time. But it seems silly because it's just right across the way. It doesn't seem very dangerous. And yet, there's still a possibility of something happening. And I can't tell you how many times uh, I would have been creamed if I went uh, immediately on a green light on Coulter Avenue. The people running red lights. That's possible for that to happen. And yet, there's a sense of greater danger uh, when uh, there's more risk involved in the travel. Uh, I still think it's risky to get on a 600-ton aluminum tube and fly across oceans. Now, it's actually probably one of the safest things. I'm still amazed that we can safely do it so consistently. But still, there's a level of risk that causes me to pray uh, when I get on that aluminum tube. Also, if we're traveling long distances on a highway, greater speeds 
greater distances, there's a, there's a level of greater risk where we pray for safe travel. Or going out in the back country, you go on these snowy and icy mountain roads, uh, you get out and you walk great distances uh, with no cell service and the cold and snow and the elements. And there's a level of, of risk where we pray for safer travel, for safe arrival. The greater the danger, the more the risk, the harder the travel, the more apt we are to seek grace for a safe arrival. And that really is the way it is when it comes to the road of traveling, coming to traveling on the road of eternal life, which Jesus says is narrow and hard. The way is narrow and the way is hard. There's an element of danger, spiritual danger. John Newton acknowledged this in that most beloved hymn, Amazing Grace, where he said, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. There's a sense of danger, but of course there's also a sense of grace. There's grace that's brought me safe thus far. and Grace will bring me home. But there's an acknowledgement of the need for grace because this road is difficult. This road is dangerous. The way is narrow and the way is hard. And one of the things that Scripture uses, that God uses, is means, the means of His Word, to bring us onto this road, to keep us on this road, and to persevere us on this road for a safe arrival towards the end. And that's what Hebrews 3 and 4 has been talking about. And so today we're going to consider three considerations for arriving safely, for, for arriving to heaven safely. First, the seriousness with which we need to consider these things. Second, uh, I call it stripped, that is the Word of God lays, uh, lays our hearts open before God. And then third, soothed. Thankfully, Hebrews 4 does not end with verse 13, but continues on to talk about our great high priest. So first, the seriousness, and, and we begin uh, again with another therefore in our passage, tying it to the previous passage. Uh, even though we've been breaking this up week by week, there's one coherent, cogent argument from chapter 3 all the way through here, and really even before. Uh, to refresh our memory from last week, basically what the author of Hebrews has been saying is don't follow the pattern of unbelief with the Israelites in the wilderness. It remains for us to enter God's rest. Therefore, don't be found to be unbelieving like the Israelites in the wilderness. And this serves as a warning to, to us of the serious and severe consequences of unbelief. We fail to enter God's rest if we are unbelieving. And now here is his conclusion to that. Verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that none may fall by the same sort of disobedience that is uh, of the Israelites in the wilderness. Their unbelief leading them to fear and not trust the Lord. Because of how significant the consequences are, let us strive to enter that rest. You think about the Israelites in the wilderness. These are not those that are out there as atheists uh, 
saying we don't believe in the one true God or, or polytheists. We believe in many gods. These were brought out of Egypt and they were traveling with the congregation of God. And yet, and they were called to do something, I think, pretty substantial, greater than any of us may have ever been called to do. Go and fight the giants in the land of Canaan and their fortified cities. And they cried out, everything's just going to turn out bad for us. And they lived in fear. That was unbelief. And they fell because of their unbelief. And so, what the author of Hebrews is saying is, really, uh, don't think that you can't be like them. Don't think that there's no tie. Make sure that you don't follow the same pattern of unbelief. Uh, that the stakes really could not be higher. We hear that a lot. The stakes couldn't be higher. We hear that a lot in our political climate. And in our political climate, really the stakes are high, but greater still, higher still, is what happens with somebody's soul. There the stakes really could not be any higher. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest. Now, doesn't it seem at first to you like it's a contradiction to say, let us strive, let us labor, strongly endeavor to enter God's rest? Doesn't that seem like a contradiction, labor to rest? Shouldn't we be laboring from rest? Well, there's two things to mention here on this front. Uh, first, uh, this is not a call for us as individuals necessarily, but really the whole community. Notice again that the verse says, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He doesn't say so that, that you don't fall, of course you're included, but that no one, that the focus is not on you as an individual, but, but on us as a community of believers, as professing believers, not just you personally, but no one among you may fall. So this is not a call to be on the treadmill of works righteousness, where we say, I believed in Christ and I found rest in him, but now I need to return to my works and I need to labor in order to make it into heaven. Belief in Christ is just the starting part. It's not Christ alone. It's Christ and me. That's not what this is, is calling us to do. Rather, this is making every effort to ensure that none among us fall away and are found to be unbelievers, found to be unbelieving. Of course, including even ourselves. So as an example, let's say there's someone you know who professes faith in Christ from, from among us. And I'm giving a hypothetical situation here, okay? Let's say there's somebody among us who, who, who professes faith they give the right answers. Uh, they can speak the truth. They can speak it accurately. You can have spiritual conversations with them to some level. But they're living in sexual immorality and drunkenness. That should give you concern because of what 
1 Corinthians 6 says, because of what Galatians 5 says, those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God no matter what they profess. And so what do we do? Well, what God's calling us to do here is to go to that person, to exhort them in a loving and gracious manner. Uh, We are being called here by God to go to them. Our culture says just love them, which means don't ever offend them, don't ever say hard things to them, because if they get offended, if they respond in a manner that shows that they're offended by it, then you've done something wrong. But let's consider even the Scripture reading this morning with John the Baptist. You brood of vipers? Boy, how would that go off in our culture today? Uh, they would probably say, look, you're being sinful, John the Baptist. You're, you're being, look at how you're acting there. People are offended by you. They even said that to Jesus. And Jesus stood up and read in, in, the, um, in the assembly, Luke 4, and he said to them something that offended them, and those people got upset with him. In our culture, it's people like that that get blamed. And we can buy into what the culture says and says, well, I don't want to say anything that's offensive to them. I don't want to jeopardize their relationship. I don't want to have that hard and awkward conversation with them. But the Scriptures are saying, lovingly, graciously, wisely, you need to go to them. Also, since the path of eternal life is narrow and hard, there are times along the way that us weary pilgrims want to give up. Uh, This is where we need to encourage one another regularly. Where we need to bear one another's burdens, encouraging each other to press on. It's what the disciples were doing in Acts 14.22, where they were, as it says there, strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is what the author of Hebrews has in mind. This community of professing believers encouraging one another to press on and not follow the same pattern of unbelief and disobedience as the Israelites in the wilderness. We need to strive towards this. A second, we need to consider the word strive. Uh, It means to hurry, to have a sense of urgency, to be diligent and to make every effort. Uh, The word, especially in the noun form, is often translated in the Bible, make haste. So for example, in Mark 6.25, it says, and she came in immediately with haste to the king. That's the use of the word there. there there's this, this urgency. This is also the sense of the word in 2 Timothy 4.21 where it's also used. Where Paul says, do your best to come before winter. So there's a sense of urgency. Hurry before winter arrives to come to me. And it involves effort. It naturally corresponds to the sense of making every effort. Make this an urgent matter. Make this a priority. Take this seriously. That's really what this means. We can tell the importance of something to, to someone by how urgently they, they get it done. Uh, this has probably happened to every parent in here at some point. Uh, your young kid comes up to you and is talking about, hey, come see what I did or something like that. And, 
you're in the middle of something, you're like, yeah, 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 I'll come see you later, yeah, yeah, and then they go on about it, and you're, you're kind of tuning them out as you're focusing on other things, but then you pick up uh, a word such as in the toilet, and then you realize that the toilet's been running longer than it should be, and you start connecting the dots, and then suddenly it becomes a priority. You drop everything and you run to see what they have done. Uh, that's what this is getting at here. It's, it's making this an urgent uh, matter. It, 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 if it seems like someone has fallen short, don't put it on the back burner. If you seem to, if you seem to have fallen short, call out to God for grace. Thankfully, that's where this passage ends and takes us to the throne of grace. Go to it. Go to it without delay. Go to it immediately. Call out to Him for grace. Taking this seriously should never lead us to self-righteousness or self-performance, but to the throne of grace. In fact, it is remaining in unbelief if you try to handle it yourself or improve upon your own righteousness by your own efforts rather than acknowledging your need and going to Christ for grace. Now, the reason this needs to be taken seriously is because of what the author goes on to say, which brings us to the second consideration for arriving safely. We saw first the seriousness with which this needs to be taken. Second, uh, script. This is what the Word of God does. Verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the reason we need to strive, that is, make this a priority. Make this an urgent matter. Don't sit on it. Don't put it on the back burner. Attend diligently to it. It's because the Word of God is living and active. What's the connection? Well, what he's getting at here is that same Word of God spoken by the prophets and written down in Holy Scripture is no dead letter. It's no empty threat. Now, generally, that's, it's true that God's Word is living and active. It's not like any other book. It's an encounter with the true and living God. And so it comes with power. It comes with authority. It comes with a life to bring about conviction of sin shines light on the dark crevices of our hearts, exposes our false thinking, exposes our self-righteousness, exposes our sins. And when it is attended with the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, it makes us come alive. This can only be said of the Word of God. The Word of God has this life. And the Word of God also, because of this, is active. It has power. It has power to make alive. It has power to put the old man to death. It has power to revive the new man. It has power to sanctify. Martin Luther once said, The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. There are many good and helpful books. There is no book like the Bible because that only is the Word of the living God. The Holy Spirit speaking to us in power. 
And because of that, it's active. It effectually accomplishes powerful things that only God can accomplish, putting to death the old man and making alive the new man, bringing conviction of sin and eternal life to sinners. However, in the flow of the context, the focus here is on the fact that the word of God is going to prove true. Therefore, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as has been declared. If you do, you will not enter God's wrath. You will, or you will not enter his rest. You will face his wrath. The word of God is going to prove true. Strive to enter his rest, for the word of God you have heard is living and active. It is no dead letter. When we say dead letter, uh, we mean that it's just some old words on a page of some bygone age that really don't matter anymore and have no effect on us. When I was uh, living in Omaha, I learned of some laws that were still on the books. Still laws on the books. You couldn't get, get a haircut on Sunday. Males could not run without a shirt on. And you had to have a horse hitching post in front of your house. Now, I was in violation of the law for not having a horse hitching post in front of my house. And so was everyone else around me. But needless to say, I was not concerned about this. I didn't go run out and get the materials for a, a hitching post because even though the law was still on the books, it wasn't really in effect. It was a dead letter. It had no bearing or effect on my life. I was, we were not going to face any penalty or force of law because in reality it wasn't in effect. Well, this is not the case with the Word of God. It is no dead letter. It is no empty word. It is no void threat. You may think that as you hear the Word and then go about your business. Lord's Day upon Lord's Day, you hear the Word of God. You hear the warning of God's wrath. You hear the need to turn from sin and turn to Christ. Don't harden your heart to that. And you do. And you go about your business. And nothing happens to you. You're not struck by lightning. You enjoy life. You have a pretty good life. You have friends, you do all these activities, things seem to be just fine. You remain unbelieving, disinterested, disengaged from God's word. You live in your secret sin, blessing yourself in your heart and say to yourself, I will be blessed even though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Nothing bad happens to me. So it seems like the, that this is a dead letter, an empty word, a void threat. I hear this week after week after week after week and, and nothing happens to me. Like the old laws that have no penalty enforcement, this is how you may think of God's Word. However, there's a sense of conviction that comes with God's Word that you must ignore and you have to harden your heart to. It goes on to say that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. The sharpest of swords back in the day with its two-edged blade and this sword, you feel it penetrate areas that penetrates nowhere else, that no, no one else can get to. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. 
Now, don't read this too technically, okay? Uh, the ancients saw these as one and the same thing. Soul and spirit, one and the same thing. Bones and marrow, one, of the, one and the same thing. Uh, we have technical medical uh, definition and distinctions for bones and marrow. They didn't have that. Uh, we can't look at this uh, through 21st century precise and technical medical uh, divisions. Rather, what this is saying is that the Word of God cuts the indivisible. Things that really cannot be divided, the Word of God can do. And also, the other point here is it penetrates into the hidden inner man that no one else sees. Soul, spirit, bones, marrow, uh, these are all things that are inner and hidden. Well, God's Word pierces into that. God's Word can see that. God's Word discerns that. He knows the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Man can only judge by outward appearance. God sees the heart. And God's Word comes to us and it exposes that. It exposes the evil intentions of our heart. And when we read the Word of God, when we encounter the Word of God, we sense that conviction. And we have to respond either in repentance or hardening our heart. And that's what the author is getting at here. This Word of God that's saying these things, you know it's living and active. You felt that because you have to do one of two things. Repent or harden your heart. But we feel that conviction. We feel exposed and judged by God's Word. And this exposure of our hearts by God's Word reveals that He does see all. And so verse 13 says, And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. So the Word of God exposes us right away. We want to hide. We want to harden our hearts. We want to ignore that conviction. And one of the things men's hearts deceive them in is by saying, God doesn't actually know. God doesn't actually see my sin. And this is where the Word of God, which knows our hearts and thoughts, says in Psalm 10:11, the wicked says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. I think this deceit is evident when uh, men will do something in private of which they would be ashamed to do if there was a person present in the room. Uh, when they know that someone is watching, then they will set aside that evil behavior that they're doing in secret. Uh, however, do they not know? Do we not know that God sees the whole time? Nothing's hidden from God's sight. That's not done in secret. No one is hidden from God's sight because He is omnipresent. He's everywhere present. And He's omniscient. He knows all things. Therefore, He sees and remembers everything. Our hearts are stripped down naked before Him. Every evil thought, every impure motive is fully known by God who sees it with a greater clarity than we ourselves have. Now, this wouldn't be this wouldn't matter so much if the person that sees and knows every evil thing we do also couldn't do anything about it. However, Scripture reminds us that this all-knowing, all-seeing God who knows our hearts perfectly is the one who is judged, the one to whom we will have to give an account. And there's no pulling the wool over his eyes. He sees everything. 
There's no getting off the hook with him. So, what do we do with this? How do we respond to this? We say, ooh, yeah, that's heavy. I, I better get serious and labor more to sin less and be more righteous. Because then maybe I'll pass God's judgment. I am going to really take my sin more seriously, do everything I can to not sin in the area that makes me feel most guilty. Because if I can take care of that, then I can have confidence to stand before God on judgment day. If I don't do something about my sin, then I may not find myself to be a Christian and not end up making it to heaven in the end. Have you ever listened to a preacher, maybe a popular one on the internet, uh, preach a sermon that leaves you feeling really convicted about your sin, but then leaves you hanging? Feel convicted and persuaded that you really need to take your sin more seriously, and you're left with, okay, I better try harder. There's a lot at stake. God's judgment is at stake. I better really try hard. Well, it's true we do need to take our sin more seriously. It's probably always true. And it's true that something does need to be done with our sin. Uh, The problem is what you just heard was the law. Verses 12 through 13 gives us God's good and holy law. However, if that is where it ended, if that is where we end, if that is where I ended this sermon, then I would have failed you. Because this leaves us in an impossible, hopeless, and helpless situation. Thankfully, this passage does not end on the law, but moves on to the gospel. This brings us to the third consideration for arriving safely, and that is soothed. We need to strive to see to it that we ourselves and our fellow members enter God's rest since it remains for us to enter and the Israelites in the wilderness failed to do so because of unbelief and God's word is no dead letter or empty threat. There will surely be consequences for hardening our hearts, ignoring his word, not believing his word, not trusting God. God knows this. God knows everything. Nothing will be hidden from his sight. We have to endure and persevere in the faith on this very hard and narrow road to which we have called, we've been called. So what do we do? Verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. What do we do? We go to our great high priest. We cast ourselves on Him. We rely on Him. We go to our great high priest. A high priest in the Old Testament was someone who cared for the people. As someone who made the people of God acceptable before God. By offering up sacrifices on their behalf. Bringing their gifts to God on their behalf. The priest himself bearing any sin 
of the people upon Himself. Praying for the people. Bringing their concerns before the people. Having their names engraved upon His heart. And we have a high priest. We have a great high priest. He is great because He is the Son of God. Remember from Hebrews 1, He's the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of His nature. He is the eternally begotten God. God of God. Light of light. True God of true God. And He has passed through the heavens. He has already entered God's rest as a forerunner for us where He lives to make intercession for us. But He had to greatly suffer for us in order to enter God's rest and bring us into God's rest. He had to suffer His whole life culminating at the cross, taking the curse that we deserve upon Himself. He faced the wrath of God for us on the cross to remove all that judgment from us. All the sins that God so clearly sees in every single detail Jesus took for us when He was naked and exposed on the cross. Taking our judgment. Giving an account for us, for our sin. Bearing that penalty for us. Christ took that accounting for us. He took the judgment for us in full. Leaving us with forgiveness of all these sins. And being covered fully with His righteousness. So that we are no longer naked before Him. But clothed and covered in the righteousness of Christ. And He is able to sympathize with us. Intimately acquainted with our weakness and weariness. Because He was tempted like us in every way. And verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. We're going to get into more detail with these verses in the next two Lord's Days. But I just want to point out a few things briefly. First, it doesn't say here that Christ sympathizes with our strengths and victories. But rather with our weaknesses. Our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be weak and weary. He knows what it's like to be beat up and beat down. He knows what it's like to have to endure and face the most difficult and crushing trials. He faced poverty, rejection, hatred, false accusations, people being stirred up against him to believe lies about him, have his reputation slandered. He faced abandonment from his disciples, betrayal by an intimate friend. His own father forsook him when he died on the cross and poured out his wrath in full for every sin, including every evil thought and intention of our heart. All our sins placed upon him, even though he was without sin. He felt nakedness and shame that came from sin, not his, but ours. He felt the, cra- the crushing weight of guilt. He felt everything that a sinner feels, and even more so. 
even though he was without sin. And so he knows what it's like to face tremendous hardship, heartache, loss, abandonment, shame. And so we go to him. We pour our, out our heart to him. We go to him knowing that he cares for us. As First Peter 5 says, he cares for you. We will not receive scolding, but sympathy from Him. And you will receive an ever-flowing stream of grace upon grace. Verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive grace and mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When the living and active Word of God convicts us, shows us our sin, shows us our remaining unbelief, We don't handle it by saying, I need to try hard to believe. We go to Him and we confess our unbelief. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Or Lord, I'm unbelieving. Save me from my sin. You're in a time of need. And He will receive you. You will receive grace from Him. When we see our wickedness, feel our shame, have doubts, want to give up, want to hide from God, Want to withdraw from Him. Scripture calls us to draw near to Him with confidence. You will not be rejected. You will be received. He turns away none who come to Him. And so we go with confidence, believing His promises. You will receive grace. You will receive mercy. When do we need grace? When do we need mercy? It's when we've blown it when we've sinned but he says with confidence you can go to his throne of grace to receive grace mercy do not be ashamed or afraid to come to him to pour out your heart to him sinful as and wicked as it may be he already knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart but he bids you to come to his throne of grace where he reigns in grace You do not need to make yourself presentable to Him before coming to Him. The one who poured out His life for sinners will pour out His grace upon you. This is how we strive to enter His rest. We let His law do its work, stripping us of our self-reliance and self-righteousness. But we then are brought to the Gospel, to the throne of grace. To receive grace and mercy even in our most desperate, sinful times. And this, beloved, is how we arrive safely home into the arms of our most gracious and loving Lord and Savior who gave Himself up for us and whoever lives to make intercession for us at the Father's right hand. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for the throne of grace. We don't need to try to strive to be more righteous, try to strive to add up. But we strive by coming to your throne of grace with urgency to receive grace and mercy. And we come now and we ask for grace. We ask for mercy. We ask for help, O God. We ask that you would give us the grace that we need to believe, to turn from sin, 
we ask that you would give us the grace we need to persevere in the faith, to, to continue uh, on this hard and narrow road through many dangers, toils, and snares. But it's grace that has brought us safe this far. And grace that will bring us home. Oh God, give us your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com. Dot com.